Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources and veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast dedicated to all things related to human resources and the vet profession. As always, I'm joined by my great friend, Katie Arline. Hey, Katie, how you doing? Hey, Mike, not too bad, thanks. How are you? Really good. Uh, spring is right it's going to come. It's, it's the middle of March, the and corner. we're going to have above freezing temperatures this week. There's going to be a big thaw. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. It'll be glorious for sure. And we have a special guest today. Uh, her name is Stacy LeBaron. She is the board treasurer for the United Space Alliance. And Katie and I met her oh, a couple of weeks ago when mm-hmm. we were invited to be part of a presentation of the United Space Alliance. And as we were going through this uh, conversation and, and interacting with the group and presenting what we were presenting on burnout, all of a sudden, we were sort of like, you know what? We don't know anything about nonprofits in the veterinary world or in the animal world, the pet care world. And I reached out to Stacy later and I said, can you join this podcast? Because I'm sure we, I know for the two of us, are interested, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be interested in hearing about nonprofits. So, Stacy, welcome. Well, thank you both for having me. So, tell us a little about yourself and tell us about the United Space Alliance. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Stacy LeBaron. I am the head cat at the Community Cats podcast, as well <laughs> as the board treasurer for the United Spay Alliance. Uh, the Community Cats podcast is all about turning your passion for cats into action. And we have provided educational events in addition to a podcast since 2016. About a year and a half ago, I reached out to Esther Meckler, the founder of the United Spay Alliance, and I said to her, I said, I think it's time for us to have a spay-neuter conference, you know, conference about spay-neuter. A lot of organizations in the nonprofit space were turning their funding away from spaying and neutering resources and going in other directions. And we really felt it was important to keep the spay-neuter conversation front and center. So Esther had founded the United Spay Alliance back in 2014. When the pandemic hit, it went dormant a little bit. And so I sort of reached out and said, let's let's open the doors. Let's get going again. And let's keep this conversation going. The United Space Alliance is a network of organizations all across the United States, as well as outside of the United States that are passionate about spaying and neutering cats and dogs, companion animals, and making sure that there's accessible, affordable, low-cost services available all throughout the country. So that's really the main focus. But there's also some topics that the organization addresses. Uh, one of which is a uh, vet shortage and vet tech shortage. Yes, and that is a global problem, for sure. And so there is a veterinary shortage task force that you're involved with? Yes, uh, we do have a veterinary shortage task force on there. Several members on there 
Dr. Bushby, some of our statewide leaders. We have our statewide leader from Indiana uh, heading up that group. And basically, the group is tasked with trying to problem solve, provide short-term, medium-term, and long-term solutions to what we have defined as a shortage for veterinarians as well as for technicians. So one project, for example, is doing an analysis of all the states and looking at what are the requirements for technicians? What can technicians do in Massachusetts versus in Tennessee? Uh, There's a whole range of different skill levels or legislative levels that, from a regulation standpoint, that technicians can do. Some states, a technician can do a cat neuter and other states, they can't. So we want to look and compare Hmm. all the states and find out where the best practices are to help with developing efficiencies within practices, as well as looking at what the veterinarians can do, too, to try and have some efficiencies. You know, we have a lot of wellness clinics in the nonprofit space. What is it that veterinarians have to do in a wellness clinic versus what can the technicians do versus what an animal assistant can do? And really break that out to make sure everybody's doing the job they're really supposed to be doing, not doing the job that everybody is doing. Yeah, fair enough. So as we just said, there is a huge vet and vet tech shortage in the vet profession. How is this impacting the animal welfare sector? It's impacting us uh, significantly. Uh, There was a study presented actually at uh, the United Spay Alliance's uh, online conference on Sunday, where an analysis was done of how many spay-neuter surgeries were missed, taking an analysis of 2019, the uh, level of spay-neuter surgeries done in the low-cost clinics, using that as a baseline for 2019, looking at 2020, 2021, there was a shortage of 2 million spay-neuter appointments in comparison. So just looking at that, you can understand why people are having such a hard time accessing spay-neuter appointments for their pets. It's a real challenge. And much of that is a result of the shortage in the availability of veterinarians. There was another study in Michigan. It was like there were 150 graduates, veterinary graduates in Michigan, and like 250 job opportunities available for veterinarians just in the state of of Michigan. That's not for nonprofits. That's for everybody. But still, that's huge in terms of the the pressures that we feel. And and obviously, compensation, benefits, those are issues that are, Mm. are challenges for us as a nonprofit sector to try and compete against the private practice and and others. Yeah, so is that something that you see, you know, when you're trying to recruit veterinarians in the nonprofit sector? Are they looking for equal compensation or do you still have a number of altruistic people who are just interested in the, you know, nonprofit sector? Yeah, well, I think that we're targeting uh, newer graduates now too. And so they uh, okay. are looking... For a combination, I have to say. Uh, so we have to get creative and inventive. I know this is popular in private practice too, but the, the four-day work week came up quite a bit throughout the whole right. weekend. Uh, not having to be on call after their work hours, finding a way for their coverage for emergency triage situations from somebody else. That's another one. Um, the things in the nonprofit space that we're trying to get really creative and inventive on are the loan repayment programs. Uh, there are federally, like okay. if you work for a nonprofit for five or 10 years, your student loans can be paid off. So yes, it doesn't translate into compensation in year one, but if you owe $200,000 in student loans, if you work for that nonprofit for 10 years and you get that $200,000 paid off, there's a benefit there. And not a lot of folks know about those opportunities. 
in Ohio, they've designated some special legislation too to help with veterinarians working in nonprofits. So we really are trying to have to get inventive, creative, and be good communicators mm-hmm. to make sure that people know that these opportunities mm-hmm. are available as we have it in a recruiting package and speed. We want to make sure we respond quickly to an inquiry for a position. We want to turn that around very quickly because if you let things fester in the HR world now, you know, you snooze, you lose. Yeah. So you've got oh, sure. to make sure you're yeah. moving forward on that. But creativity, understanding that there's very specific clarity on the position. So you're not like, oh, you have to report to the board of directors every third Thursday, you know, those kinds of things. Right. Just making sure that there's very clear, defined, how is this all going to work and make sure that there's this life uh, work balance protections put in place with a lot of clarity. I would say all things being equal, even if you are offering lower salaries, the benefit of the loan repayment be huge. I would think if getting that word out, I mean, you would, I I can't imagine it would just open up so many more opportunities for young vets. That's, That's such a challenge in the United States. Yeah, for sure. I also, you know, the mission, making people feel good that they're right in the place, but also making sure that they're not going to hit moral distress in the spay-neuter clinic. If a cat comes in and has severe dental disease, you're not able to treat that disease. So, you know, how does that impact you emotionally? So we need to also be able to address some of those issues too and prepare our staff to be able to handle that. Well, we certainly want to get to that because that sort of gets on to our discussion at your conference on burnout. But you also brought up something a little bit earlier I want to touch upon. And that's something that we would never think about in a private practice, and that is you have board of directors and executive directors. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there's, it may be more hierarchical uh, than in a a smaller private-owned vet practice, or am I misguided on that? No, it's, I think it's very, very true. I mean, your veterinarian in a nonprofit could be your highest paid employee, above your executive director, but yet that veterinarian is reporting to your executive director and being managed by that executive director, or even in another scenario could be uh, managed by a spay neuter clinic manager. That's, you know, just the practice manager or something like that. Uh, However, oftentimes I feel in the nonprofit space, the board of directors looks to the veterinarian for leadership guidance, for strategic leadership guidance for the organization. Um, and I personally have mixed feelings about that. I'm not necessarily sure that the veterinarian is in a position to to play that role or also, you know, they're often so much in the weeds in the day to day. It's hard to look from the balcony. And that's what we look for in our board of directors is to be able to look above and look at the organization holistically and be able to make strategic decisions that way in in concert with your staff, especially with your executive director. So there can be easily lots of confusions about responsibility and who's managing whom and who's in charge of what and that kind of thing. And so it is a very, very fancy dance for sure. Question I have on that, because this is one thing that Katie and I see in a lot of the practices that we work with, and and it's no fault of anybody. It's just how the profession has gone. And that is, uh, we need an office manager or a practice manager. And it's sort of by default, it's like, oh, this technician has been here the longest, you're it, or somehow. And we elevate people to positions of leadership or management without often the skill set to perform. 
Is that similar in, in the nonprofit world or on these nonprofits? Are they more selective and and hiring people that maybe have the skills that can run a team? That is a very good question. Uh, I know it's highly encouraged to move people up the ladder within the organization. That is a statistically a much more successful placement than hiring from outside. But also you need to make sure you're comparing oranges to oranges, not oranges to apples. So that person moving into that office manager position is now going to be wearing the hat of HR manager, administration manager, customer service manager. So there, there's always this battle of, are you hiring for the position or are you hiring for the person? And I think that that's true in the nonprofit space. And it sounds like it's true in private practice also. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because you get really well-meeting people and, and people that, you know, it's that Peter principle were absolutely fantastic at the job they were doing. It was like, well, you're so great there. You must be good at another role. And, and that's not necessarily the truth. And, and it's not just the veterinary profession. I think that's just any business whatsoever. But what we get frustrated by, and it's, and it's again, it's nobody's fault. It's just how it goes is that these people get put in this position. They don't have the skill set. Maybe the selection process was not the most transparent. And all of a sudden, people get in these positions and half the staff is resents it because they feel somebody else should have had it, or they just don't have the support from the veterinary practice owners, which in your case would be the board of directors, or they just don't have the training to be effective managers. Because honestly, I'm, and I'm sure this is a similarity with the nonprofits, it's, it's all about people management. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. And the other thing is support, educational training support. So in the case of this technician moving into sort of a manager's position, there would be a, a training process that they would have to go through probably outside of the organization to learn to get those skills to be able to mm-hmm. bring information to the table for them and, and understanding because there are certain set systems in place, but also they need an understanding of the whole big picture. I think that would be a good test to see whether that person was really comfortable with the new position or not based on some pre-work that needed to be done. But it would sound like if a veterinarian or a vet tech was joining a nonprofit, if they're used to working in a private practice, there's probably some new skill sets or just some things they need to learn because you have these executive directors and board of directors. So what would be like the three things or two or three things you would say to somebody who was curious about going to work for a nonprofit that would be different than what they're used to in a private practice? Yeah. So I think that the one thing is organizational management. So understanding in the nonprofit world, it can sometimes feel like it's the Wild West a little bit because there have been so many people coming and going. Oftentimes, spay-neuter clinics as a a Band-Aid or even as a long-term situation, they will use per diem vets, they'll use per diem techs. People do things one way, people do things another way. You know, is there a standard set of SOPs? And if there are, I want to see those ahead of time. I want to see how you do operations. How are your HR issues handled? If somebody comes to my clinic and I need to call the police on them because they're belligerent or whatever, you know, just run through all the potential scenarios of what might happen in a clinic. And certainly, uh, obviously, talking with multiple staff members and finding out from them what a typical day is like in the clinic, um, what's the volume, what's the expectations of me. But I, I certainly think it would be communication, 
uh, HR as well as the standard operating procedures? And is there clarity around that? How do you find those systems, those foundations? Are they commonly in place in a nonprofit or is it sort of hit or miss? I mean, it's hit or miss in the non-nonprofit world <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's, it's very uh, hit or miss. And I think that when an organization, say you have a clinic that's operating maybe two days a week, you know, with a, with a couple of per diem vets, mm-hmm. and then the opportunity comes for them to grow and to expand. I would say when a nonprofit clinic gets to a size of anywhere from 300, 400,000 a year in revenue up to a million dollars a year of revenue, that's at a tipping point. That's sort of the nonprofit revenue tipping point right. where you have to start being real. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a mm-hmm. bad way. But you have to start dealing with consistencies, common reactions, treating everybody equally. It's more than a family now. So it's that Mm -hmm. adolescent period of an organization where you, if you don't do the homework, then you're going to really be in trouble later, I think. Yeah. I mean, and that is absolutely the case with the, you know, traditional (laughs) medicine as well. It's sort of when we have folks that contact us and they're like, okay, I'm one vet and now I'm expanding and what do I need to do? We're sort of like, oh, good, because it's much easier than going in to an environment where there's 30 people and they're, you know, they don't have any, any of those things in place. And it's, it's such a challenge. So yeah, it's sounds pretty much, you know, the parallel is there. That's for sure. And keeping up on the HR issues is a huge challenge. Keeping up on what's required by law at the state level as well as at the federal level and having the systems to be able to track it so that you don't have to hire a part-time person to manage all of this stuff is uh, a real burden for the nonprofits. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Obviously, on the subject of burnout, which is something we talked a a couple of weeks ago at the um, Spay Alliance conference, you know, compassion fatigue is definitely something that's that's huge in the non-nonprofit sector. But I know there's this idea of moral distress that is, you know, something that is prevalent in the nonprofit sector. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the differences between compassion fatigue and moral distress? Yeah, sure thing. So moral distress is a term that I guess was founded within the nursing space. And so uh, moral distress is that you are suffering from anxiety, emotional issues, because You'll see an animal and you know that there are things that you can do, but you can't provide those services. Mm. And where compassion fatigue is a grief due to loss. So you're just tired of so many animals having to be euthanized. You have compassion fatigue for you're worried about your staff members. You see, you know, there's burnout, you're working too hard, and that kind of thing. The moral distress is that morally, I know what I should do for this cat that's on the table here Mm -hmm. with teeth falling out. Morally, I know that there's something I need to do, but I do not have the ability to be able to do it because it's out of my control. Mm -hmm. And so that's where moral distress comes in. So in in the nursing space, it's they come in, they believe they have things that they could do for this patient, but they're not allowed to do it. So they're being held back. So there's that level of frustration there. And I think a lot of that comes from you know, there's the economic euthanasia issues that are out there that a large population of animals are euthanized because they can't afford the procedures that are necessary. And there are organizations uh, established like Waggle.org that has a mission to uh, help end economic euthanasia, which is, it's an interesting business model as well as the nonprofit space right now in animal welfare. We're trying to create programs that will help fund those procedures 
so that people are able to keep their pets and they won't have to make those euthanasia decisions rather than putting it all into, into sheltering. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring up those because I know in the, the burnout presentation we did, and we've also discussed burnout on this podcast, two of the factors we talked about, of the six factors that contribute to burnout, uh, fairness and control are two big ones. And I can see how in the nonprofits or in the the spay neuter groups, these would be big factors. Like you don't have control over things. And it's so not fair for the animals and the people. Right, for sure. I mean, you're worrying about your board of directors that's going to go, there's a $3,000 charge on this bill for this one animal. And, and unfortunately, in the foundation world, a lot of our grants are on like cost per cat or cost per animal. And you want it as low as possible because they want the biggest impact. So looking at our impact numbers, mission impact numbers, it seems more exciting to have 2,000 animals than 20. But if we're doing a program where we're doing dentals on 20 cats versus spay neuter for 2,000, you know, it doesn't look as good, but yet it's, it's equally as important for the wellness of the community of cats. So I think we might have to look at our impact numbers in a different way too. And so what typically, or, you know, in general, how do these nonprofits, these spay neuter clinics handle these stresses, the, the compassion fatigue, moral distress? So of recent time, I think that a lot of these clinics are going more towards using per diem vets rather than full-time staff veterinarians. And it helps those veterinarians be able to recover and heal rather than having one veterinarian working four or five days a week, they're working just one or two. And so they can sort of get their mental energy together for those two days and then cycle out. As I said, that the nonprofits, the animal welfare space is working on having a lot more supportive programs on the holistic issues for companion animals. So it's, it is going above and beyond the spay neuter. The spay neuter is the bedrock. That's the door that the companion animal first walks through And then we're going, okay, now there are these other issues. We have resources to be able to send you over here or over here, over here. So making sure there's a place. The other thing in the nonprofit clinic space, we are adding social workers in the practice. And so that's another component so that then when it becomes bigger, so to say we're running into a hoarding situation, somebody's brought in a couple of cats or two cats have come in from the neighbor and they go, you know, there's another 60 next door, just like this. That is above and beyond what that immediate clinic can handle, but that goes to that social worker. Or So making sure that there's, there's always a place to send them to get help and knowing that the, the circle is going to be fully completed rather than going, I can only just do this quarter of the circle and then it's hanging and I don't know what's going to happen after that. So that, that's really, I think, where we're focusing in animal welfare is creating this relationship with the family, working with them and being able to provide whatever services that they need to elevate the status of the companion animals in in the house, in the community-wide. What a great example of One Health, of the interaction of veterinary medicine and human medicine, because so much of this, I would imagine, when people are coming to you, there is often challenges with the people. Uh, As you were talking, I was thinking there are some outstanding groups in Canada working in inner city with homeless people out of pets. And, you know, and from the side of that, there's also a very strong spay neuter because there's a lot of problems with that too in the inner cities. It's such an admirable mm-hmm. role that the vet profession plays in that. I, I look at that and I just, I'm sort of a little embarrassed <laughs> in terms of how many of us get so focused on what we're doing in our clinical practices 
and realizing uh, such the impact there is on other areas. So bravo. And there's a great way of interrelating the private practices with the nonprofit practices. It's not just we're over here and you're over there. We're collaboratively working together to make a difference in the community for our, our clients, for our animals, for everybody. And it, we don't all have to be all things to everyone. So, you know, each private practice, they can choose to just help in a little way. And we can choose to help the private practice in a little way, you know, the nonprofits. A lot of referrals go back and forth and there's working together and communicating. And I think that there's a real symphony that could be created between the private practices as well as the nonprofits, especially in the rural areas where there really aren't a lot of access to multiple resources. What would you say to a private practice owner? Uh, I can imagine there's probably a couple listening to this going, oh, every time I, they open a spay neuter clinic in my neighborhood, I'm worried I'm going to lose business. And I've heard many vets say that, but you're talking about a collaboration, a symphony. So what would you say to that practice owner about that? So yeah, I, before I opened uh, my mobile spay-neuter clinic, the, the Catmobile with the organization I used to work with before, I used to work with 14 different private veterinarians for our spay-neuter services. And so I've had this conversation with them uh, many times. And really it would be interesting for, for them to look at their phone logs to see how often they've had to turn people away that have said they can't afford the pricing. Because that's really the service that we are involved with providing. In general, 90% of the people who come to the low-cost spay-neuter clinics, their cats, in my world, I swing in the cat world, so the cats, 90% of those families have not brought their cats to a veterinarian. So it, we are getting them in the door first and foremost. If we come across something extra, since we're only providing the spay-neuter services at this point in time, we can then refer them to the private practice veterinarian and also counsel them on ways that they're able to potentially afford those services. You know, have a little bit of the human touch rather than being just on the phone and saying, you know, no, we can't help you. You can't afford this. You know, maybe we know the nonprofit services that then can pay the private veterinarians to do that dental that this cat really needs. So there's a problem solving that goes on there between the private practice clinic, the spay neuter clinic, and the client. How can we piece this together? Because these cats are going to have secondary issues that are going to come up down the line. They're going to need support of a private practice veterinarian at some point. So that's where that lead's going to come from us. Honestly, most of these private practice veterinarians that I worked with now have the Catmobile's business card and they refer the number out. If anyone says they can't afford the services, the referral goes to the Catmobile and inevitably they end up back as a client for, for follow-up services if the folks can't afford it. And if not, they come to the nonprofit to get the support that they need. That's a great answer. Thank you. I'm going to keep it just because I, I still have these conversations come up. So that's good to know. We've been talking about a lot of aspects of the, you know, the nonprofit sector and how it manages with people. Is there anything we should have talked about that we didn't talk about? A lot of times nonprofits feel that they need to have a veterinarian on their board of directors. So if you are a private practice veterinarian and you have been asked to join the board of directors, I would just recommend you do your due diligence because I also feel that oftentimes the board feels that then that, that veterinarian can supervise the current veterinarian that's employed by the practice. And I think that's asking an awful lot. And I don't necessarily think that's your role as a board of directors. So just as long as the board understands what it means to be a governance board and not a management board. Again, clarity. 
But I do know that quite a few organizations really strongly believe they want to have a veterinarian on their board of directors. And I just, I, I have also seen that come into sort of trouble between veterinarian to veterinarian, which is actually the last thing we'd ever want. Sure. As I expected, this was really informative. And uh, on behalf of Katie and I, really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us and educating us. And I'm sure the people listening to us on the difference, uh, you know, the more you're describing it, there are some differences, but, you know, people are people. And uh, the mm-hmm. challenges that we're facing in the vet profession in general, I think, kind of covers across whatever sector you're in. You know, we knew about uh, compassion fatigue, moral distress is a new phrase. And I'm, I'm very interested. I'm glad to hear about that and understand that better. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. And if folks are interested in finding out more about the work of the United Spay Alliance, we are at the website unitedspayalliance.org. We also have a campaign for veterinarians as well as the general public called Feline Fix by Five, felinefixedbyfive.org. We'd love to have private practices sign up to be supportive of primarily spaying neuter cats before the age of five months because they can get pregnant earlier than six months. Uh, and so I just would encourage folks to check out both of our websites. We have a lot more information than I was able to cover today. So felinefixedby5.org and unitedspayalliance.org. We will make sure to put any links that you want in the show notes. So anybody that's listening to this has ready access to these links, your podcast, whatever. Also, we should also have a link to the past convention you had so people can sign up. For sure. They're available. The recordings are available for up to a year and um, we'll make sure we have that link to you. Thank you so much, Stacey. That was great. Thanks, Stacey. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.